Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, November 5th, 2015, the Guantanamo and Turkey's voting edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham, joined as usual by my co-hosts, Cristalia Kintu, a Birmingham Research Fellow. Hello, Cristalia. Hello, Adam. Hello, world. And Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. Hello, Scott. Good to speak. Hello. <laughs> Try again. Good to be here. Yeah, you want to have, have, have a second go at that? It's, right. it's, it's tough sometimes being a communicator, I know. <laughs> Hello, Adam. It's great to be here. Awesome. <laughs> Our two topics this week. First, the United States released Shekharama, the last UK resident held in the Guantanamo Bay detention camp. We discuss what his case tells us about American counterterrorism policy in the post-9-11 era and wonder if there's any chance that President Obama will manage to fulfill his promise to close that camp during his presidency. Second, Turkey returned to the polls for a do-over of the June parliamentary elections and handed an unexpected, by most at least, majority to the party of President Erdogan after a period of simultaneously escalating instability and authoritarianism in the country. With Turkey now bitterly divided, just how bleak might things get? On October 30th, Sheikh Arama, a 48-year-old Saudi citizen and British resident, was finally released to the UK after spending 13 years at the US military detention camp at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. He'd been held there without trial or charge since shortly after being picked up by bounty hunters in Afghanistan in 2001 and handed over to American forces. During his time in US custody, he was interrogated, frequently held in solitary confinement, and he says, and we have little reason to doubt it, tortured. US intelligence asserts that he was deeply involved in the activities of Al-Qaeda prior to his capture. He denies any such thing. His supporters claim his release to the UK was prevented for so long because he would talk publicly about his mistreatment and implicate the British intelligence services in it. Guantanamo Bay was, and still is, the most visible manifestation of an American policy after 9-11 of detaining suspected terrorists without trial on foreign soil. President Obama came to office pledging to close the camp and ordered it done at the outset of his presidency, but he faced a resistant Congress and a reluctant public mood, and he's never managed to do so. Although the population of the camp in terms of prisoners has fallen to 112 now from a peak of 779. Most of those who've been released to their home or third countries without further incident. A small number of those released allegedly, however, have quote-unquote returned to the battlefield. Those remaining present perhaps the defining challenge of the Bush administration's detainee legacy. What to do with those judged too dangerous to release or who have nowhere to go, but who can't be tried in court because the case against them is irrevocably tainted by prolonged detention, torture, and sketchy sources of evidence. So, Scott, has Barack Obama failed here, or is he caught in a bind? Both. He failed because he never chose to get to grips with the legal issues around this, with the political issues around this, and he failed because by nature he's a cautious politician rather than one that wants to basically go into a situation where he's going to face a lot of conflict. Just a couple points, just to make this clear. That of those almost 800 people at Guantanamo Bay, none of them have faced a proper hearing to define guilt. At the same time, none of them have ever been given the status as they should have been of prisoner of war status because the Bush administration said the Geneva Convention did not apply to them, just unilaterally said it. So we were in a position where there's a limbo. It's not a military situation. At the same time, there's no legal process brought in. There could be no legal process brought in for almost all these people because in many cases, evidence was obtained by torture, uh, including waterboarding, sleep deprivation. In many cases, the supposed evidence has disappeared because files weren't kept properly or because various intelligence agencies are too embarrassed to try to bring those files forward. What Obama said, as you quite rightly pointed out, is he entered office and said, here's my promise, within a year it's going to be closed. What I really find, just to be basically almost cynical, and it doesn't really fit Obama's character, but cynical is, is that after a year he didn't really come back and say, look, it's not going to be closed. We just can't do it. He didn't say it after two years, after three years, after four years. He just almost hoped that the issue would go away. And meanwhile, the United States... Which is a pretty tall hope, to be honest. It was, because... Characteristic of Obama, is it not? That doesn't seem to... The hope something is going to be away doesn't seem to me to be in keeping with his... That, but at some point you would expect him to engage because he presents that that notion of honesty as a politician... At least to engage, you know, he has tried to come back and engage with Afghanistan. For example, the U.S. troops are going to have to go back into Afghanistan. He's engaged with Iraq at times, pulling the troops out and then saying, oh gosh, things aren't going well. He's never really engaged with the fact, which is, 
He never stood up domestically mm. and said, look, these people are going to be given a trial in U.S. courts because he faced too much resistance from Congress. Mm. He faced too much resistance from local constituencies. Mm. He faced too much resistance even to put these people into U.S. prisons on the American mainland. Mm. Because he made, he made a go at doing some or all of those things at various <clears throat> points, but he pretty much immediately gave up. Yep. Once the full strength of the firestorm that followed became apparent. In the first year of the administration, if you remember, they tried to classify. They said, all right, here's people we think we can deal with. And their strategy with those people was, we can probably get other countries to take these people back. Which, in fact, has been the strategy that they pursued now for almost seven years in this administration. And the problem is, of course, is that for political reasons, countries don't want these people back or... There's various reasons why these folks, possibly because of asylum issues, can't go back, mm-hmm. right? Mm. Like so, those, those countries would happily have them back, but not in a good way. Yeah, uh, exactly. So you can't just hand them over. Can't send them. So that was the Keep easy thing. Keep them in plan. Guantanamo. Yeah, yeah well, I, I guess when you're choosing to stay in Guantanamo yeah. Bay rather than take your next offer, you know that that offer must be pretty yeah. poor. Yeah. yeah. So he, that was his easy category, remember? Yeah. His harder category would have been, for example, people who may, in fact, have to face you know, criminal charges mm-hmm. for various criminal papers, but they never went through the process of filing those. And then there was a category of folks who were considered basically real threats in the so-called war on terror. Mm-hmm. People like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, the supposed planner of 9-11. And at the end of the day, they went through a token hearing for him to be able to deal with that isolated case. So here we are. Where are we going to be? Gradually, a few more of those, more than 100 people, you know, folks will be released and so on. But... Let's take the case this week of a British resident mm. held for 13 years. He will never be able to get compensation for what he's undergone, despite the fact that he most likely was tortured, despite the fact, and let's speak, that allegedly, and I'll just emphasize the alleged, allegedly that British intelligence operatives witnessed mm. the torture mm-hmm. that took place. Mm. Despite that, he will not be able to get... And he has all sorts of quite serious medical legacies, psychological and physical from this. Do you mean adequate compensation or any compensation? Any compensation. The family have basically accepted now, through the the lawyers, they said this week, look, we're looking for an apology rather than financial compensation. Because American law just has vast blanket exceptions for national security type stuff. It's very hard to bring the government to court. British British government? Uh, No, U.S. government. I mean, the British connection here is not uh, uh, super well Well, demonstrated as yet. Okay. I mean, other than the fact that he saw it and he can say it. But as as I'll just extend with that, the British are pretty good at closing this off as well. Right. Because, for example, when Mozambique was released from Guantanamo, the prominent activist who's campaigned on behalf of other uh, detainees, you know, Begg was basically arguing he had witnessed, you know, acts of torture the British operatives were involved and yeah. allegedly were involved. And they basically closed off the possibility that there would ever be testimony in court because the argument is intelligence officers can't appear yeah. for security reasons mm-hmm. in court. Yeah. So that's been, that route of compensation has been closed off. I don't think you'll ever get an apology because an apology implies some sort of guilt, culpability yeah. and so on. And so both the U.S. and the British governments will just simply try to close it off. I'll just make one broader point that extends this and and this is just I think it explains a little bit of my frustration and I would even say anger over this it's not just the question of Guantanamo Bay the Bush administration broke US and international laws across the board they broke laws on surveillance they broke laws in rendition they broke laws on basically enhanced interrogation torture right I'll say that that's my belief the Obama administration instead of confronting those issues, has tried to basically cover everything up. So, for example, they have blocked bringing cases of rendition into U.S. courts. They have tried to block bringing cases over mass surveillance. And this is well before Edward Snowden into U.S. courts. The Obama administration's attempt on this, whether it's the president who directs this or just the bureaucracy, has been to just simply try to cover this up. Mm. I guess partly because I'm an academic, partly because I'm a journalist. I like to get clarity at the end of the day. I would at least like resolution on what happened. Mm. And we're not going to get it. I had understood that there'd been a number of out-of-court settlements with, with some, of the, some of the people who were interned in, Gu- in Guantanamo. Is that not the case? There has been... Quiet payments on the side. Quiet payments, but as part of the payments <clears throat> that have supposedly been carried out. Shut your also, mouth. There's also the argument, which is you don't reveal what happened at mm. this point. You basically have a non-disclosure agreement which rides with it, mm. which says. And again, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how many of these agreements would have been signed, whatever. But it is in again to keep the issue out of and away from closure and resolution, rather than actually confronting it. And I'd understood that that also includes 
um, those, what was it, four other British British people who were held in Guantanamo, or British citizens who were held in Guantanamo, they had also, some of them had also received settlements. And I think that, if that's the case, that's important. What that underlines, both in the US and, and the UK cases, is that MPs want to keep this out of out of public eye. Why? Because it's a massive issue of violation of trust, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You can't trust it, it, it. That would show the exposure of those kind of facts would show exactly how much you can't trust the government. Yeah. I mean, later on, spoiler <coughs> alert, there's going to be a reference to Iraq, 2003. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, it's linked here. This whole period, a war and terror period, going from Afghanistan through Guantanamo, mm-hmm. through Iraq and afterwards is just the abuses in the so-called war on terror, whether they happened in a direct theater of war, yeah. such as Iraq, whether it happened with extrajudicial proceedings, which is what we're talking about here, is that governments just simply do not want to live up to their responsibility. There will be some token efforts. You've mentioned the cases that may have been settled. There's some token efforts to say we have dealt with laws to make sure this doesn't happen again, but they're token. Yeah. Well, well with regard to Shaker Armour, we should probably stipulate at the outset that when it comes to whether he's guilty of some, all or none of the things that the US says about him, which is that he was a, quote, recruiter, financier and facilitator for Al-Qaeda, well, we just don't know. Um, on the one hand, it's fair to say that it takes a degree of bad luck if you're entirely unconnected to anything like that to have been in that place at that time, been caught in the net, been fingered by other people. On the other hand, we do know that pretty much all of the evidence against him would be worthless in any court, either because the, uh, the sources are dodgy or because it was obtained under duress and the Bush administration itself admittedly uh, admitted finally in the end that they flat out just didn't have any kind of evidence uh, to, to to back up in any defensible public way what they'd accused him of. But I think we can probably all agree that whether or not he's pure as the driven snow, in retrospect, it was a very bad call for the United States to grab these people, torture them, detain them for that length of time because it's delivered limited benefits, if any, in terms of intelligence in exchange for vast, possibly irreparable damage in terms of the United States' reputation, yeah. uh, in terms of the supposed moral edge that it that it has. And I'm sure President Obama would probably agree. He certainly yeah. did while he was campaigning for office. <clears throat> yeah, well. Can we also interject the, ter- the, the fact that they used bounty hunters? Or at least they set a bounty and yeah. then it kind of... De- bounty hunters yeah, well, will tend to follow those. Default, you would you use bounty hunters, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, bounty hunters are kind of a self-recruiting mm-hmm. profession. The US has this program called TIP. Remember this whole TIP program where they're offering massive amounts mm. of money just to simply pull up people and say, here you go. You know, and this is something that was, you know, not a quiet campaign. They're publicly splashing it everywhere. Look, start with basics here, you know, and just to to say what should be the obvious disregarded, innocence until proven guilty. And this wasn't just one person who was caught up by bad luck. We were talking about scores of cases of people who claim bad luck in terms of where they were, whether they were doing, quote, charity work, whether they were there basically... So, I mean, yeah, so I mean, you've got to think with whatever it was, uh, 779 people. I mean, you've got to imagine yeah. that some. they're not all innocent. No, some of those people will be up to their, to, to, to their necks in this. But we just, as a result of the way in which their cases have been handled from day one, it's just hellish difficult, probably impossible now to get to the bottom of it. Because if you take 700 people, torture all of them, and then the evidence of each of them is the evidence against the others, well, that, that is not really a, a defensible situation. But Adam, remember that what you've just said was basically manipulated from 2001 by officials to basically justify this this sweeping approach to random people. Dick Cheney, the vice president, had what he called the 1% doctrine, Mm. which later became basically the title of a book about Cheney's approach. Mm. And... Subtitle Crazy Town. It's <laughs> the idea that if there's a 1% chance of something happening, but it's catastrophic, you have to treat it as though there's a 100% chance of it happening. That's which, if you roll it out across the board, is clearly uh, actually insane. Running the world. Right. right so, that's like saying that you need to treat your spouse like they are definitely going to murder you because right. there is a 1% chance they might do it. So if 1% of the people you get may actually be planning dastardly mm. things, it's justifiable to hoover up the other 99%, even though they may have no connection whatsoever. And then hopefully it'll all get sorted out down the line. And, and you know, but, it, but at that time, you basically bring them. And that's exactly what the Bush administration did. I mean, that's how Guantanamo starts yeah. within weeks in the start of 2002. 
And as far as I know, no one is actually revoking. They may question how far this went, but no one's revoking the basics of that excuse, mm-hmm. that there are certain exceptional circumstances which justify this mm-hmm. flouting of the law. And this, I mean, there's two, there's two things that concern me a little, by which I mean a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> one is that in obsessing over Guantanamo in the first place, we're at risk of losing sight of the principle which is that it's true that Obama's been obstructed by Congress in closing that specific camp, fair enough, not his fault. But even then, all he was trying to do was move the ones he's keeping there to another location. Uh, And for all we know, there may be other locations in which people are being detained without trial. So, uh, you know, the question remains, what does the United States do with people that it captures based on intelligence or information that it says isn't usable in court? Does it let them go? Does it detain them? If so, for how long? I mean, are these people going to be here till they die of old age? Uh, does it just kill them? Uh, I mean, is that better? Mm. If someone's never in your custody because you've just blown them up or, or put a bullet in them, is that you know a better option? I guess in some narrow sense it is. And secondly, uh, just to go back to what you were saying before, Scott, you know, to the extent that some of the worst practices of the early Bush years have been curbed, waterboarding, mm. as far as we know, has not been happening. Uh, black sites and dragnets don't operate in quite the same way, and the indefinite detention machine doesn't... Who knows you tend to find out about these things on a, on a bit of a time delay but we don't believe it's happening but all of that has changed basically on on obama's say so uh, which is to say that this could all change again under any successor and that's because no one was held accountable for what happened before yeah. not the officers who carried out the torture up to and including lest we forget some deaths yeah. not the lawyers who wrote the opinions saying that that was legal not the political leaders under whose instructions they were they were operating. And I understand why Obama chose to pursue that course, because he wanted to look to the future. He knew that if he tried retrospectively to hold everyone to account, you know, this takes all the oxygen out, out of the room. You don't have the loyalty of your intelligence services. And, of course, it sets a precedent for presidents pursuing previous presidents over mm-hmm. breaches of the law, which is not a great precedent in those countries where, mm-hmm. where it happens. But still, it does mean that, that whoever's next, if they are a fire-breathing national security hawk, mm. as one or two of the people in this uh, contest are like to be, mm. uh, then all this stuff could come roaring back with a vengeance with nothing to restrict it. Um, you know, Do we think for a moment that a President Ted Cruz, for example, if we should be so unlucky mm. to find ourselves in that position, is going to be disinclined to do this kind of thing? And ultimately, sadly, the general public just doesn't seem to... Uh, give enough of a damn about you know, people who accidentally get detained for terrorism to push back. Mm. No, I agree. Scott's opened his mouth and shaking his head just for those of you at home who can't see. No, I, I think that's an excellent <coughs> summary, Adam. I just would briefly add that even if we don't get a Ted Cruz as president, that let's say that we get a Hillary Clinton as mm. president, the United States is saddled as it tries to pursue its foreign policy with any opponent using you know the what about this diversion of saying... But you still keep people at Guantanamo Bay. How dare you have a right to tell us about our uh, abuse of human rights? Mm. How dare you tell us about what justice means to be? There really is no comeback by the Americans to that. They basically have fouled the nest on rights and justice because of the symbolism. Even if it's not, you know, we're talking not thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, which we could talk about in other cases in other countries. Mm. Symbolism matters here, and it's not going to be confronted. If we can, before we close, I think if we can just kind of refocus to the to, to the person who began this story. I've worked with and interviewed people who have been disappeared, specifically in Syria, by the Syrian government, and who have, some many years later, returned on the Lebanese border um, and been taken back to their families. And just popped up? Yeah, yeah, they just popped up. Fancy <laughs> meeting you here. Uh-huh. How Where have you, you been? Good here. trip. Also, who are you? You have no identification on you sucks to be you 15 20 years later and it is tr- it, i mean it, it's not trite to say that it is tremendously hard for these people to reintegrate into their families because mm. this guy has a son who wasn't even born yeah. when he got lifted right yeah. who is now a yeah. teenager yeah and i guess maybe if following on Christelle's point just the horrible irony is that we are discussing this on the day that amnesty comes out and writes a report about enforced disappearances yeah. in this case syria 65,000 people uh, who have disappeared, 58,000 of them non-combatants, in other words, civilians. And as I said, no way is to say that the U.S. is better than Syria, vice versa, one's worse than the other. 
just that you don't really want to be in the position of having that argument you know where, where you really, we, 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 well we've disappeared fewer people so we win well, I mean, you that's, don't I, yeah, want to be the on principle the of the thing <laughs> you also don't want to be on the receiving end of any of that yeah, it's like I've barely disappeared like more like <laughs> not even three yeah. figures of people well I guess I would put it this way and that is if the US isn't going to confront this and we know that for example the Syrian regime isn't going to confront this mm. then others need to confront this so for example and let's go back to the US case there were European intelligence services. We mentioned the British, but there were other services, European intelligence services, that were complicit mm. in this. They were complicit in Guantanamo. They were complicit in rendition. And one would hope that there would be a reckoning to be had, for example, through the European Union and individual governments that were involved with this to basically draw a line. But where... Unless I'm mistaken, we're going to hear about this again this month because is there not a civil suit um, being taken against the British government and the MI6 uh, by Libyan activists who were detained, Libyan dissidents, um, anti-Gaddafi dissidents who were detained? That comes up this month, no? I I think it is, but that will come back to the question of how much evidence is actually allowed to be presented in the civil proceeding. Because the issue there was about whether MI6 was complicit with CIA torture. Absolutely right. But as Adam noted, there were other sites as well. Don't lose sight of Guatemala. There were sites in Eastern Europe. So the question as to whether Eastern European nations Mm -hmm. acknowledge the so-called black sites. Mm. Uh, Camp Bagram, of course, was a site in Afghanistan where Mm. a lot of this took place. I doubt the Afghan government is going to be dealing with this anytime soon. But I would at least say, starting at the European level and in terms of international law, there needs to be a concerted effort yeah. to, to engage this issue. Mm. Amen, though I am not optimistic. Okay, now it's time for our regular number of the week item where we attempt to crowbar a numeral into a topical story. Scott, you are frantically, not to say frenetically, going at your iPhone, despite it being supposedly in airplane mode. Can you please, uh, can you please uh, tell us the fruits of your labor? Well, it's uh, sort of a late-breaking number, as it were, initially... And I'll just mention it. The number I was going to bring in was 152 and a half, which is... Get those, get, get those integers in. Because it's 152 and a half months since the Iraq War of 2003. Yet we heard again this week that the Chilcot Report, which is to investigate... Oh, man, don't even get me started on this role is in really, the Iraq How long can it take? ...is going to be It's going to last longer the bloody war at this point. Again... Uh, Sir John Chilcott has said, well, I, 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 next year. It will now be out next year. It will be multi-volume. It will be like yeah, someone... will be playing FA Cup finals there by, yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> by 2020. Eight times as long as War and Peace. Therefore, it must be worth the wait. And it's cost as much as the Iraq War. It's as much, yeah, and they... And it's been run with a level of competence roughly <laughs> approximating, I would suggest. You can see my panelists are running with this. The upshot of this is... Let's just cut to the core because I think it leads into our initial issue. This is a question of accountability. The reason why the Chilcott Report has not appeared before now, primarily, and let's just cut through all the fluff around it, with Sir John saying how diligent he's being, he wants to get it all right, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, is because there are a number of people who do not want any of this to come out during their lifetimes. One of those people is Tony Blair, who offered a token (laughs) semi quarter eighth of an apology they said hashtag sorry not sorry yeah i'm really sorry it didn't turn out as well as i wanted it to but i still would have done it effectively uh there are other names which we could name but for legal reasons i won't of people who would be embarrassed if the truth fully came out in terms of what led to this war and we're talking about a war that was decided upon a year before the first bombs actually fell. And God knows if there's one reason the classification laws are in place, it's to spare people embarrassment. I think we can During all agree. I think, yeah, exactly. I think we can all agree. <laughs> God, God, I just hope that I never find myself in the position where I'm having to use phrases like, I, 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 I think it's wrong that this should come out within my lifetime. <laughs> once, once, once that's the horizon on which you feel yeah. your decisions need to be classified, you know that you're probably... Like, in your quiet time, not 100% happy with, with all the things you decided to do. So remembering that there are other numbers that we could invoke here in terms of the British establishment effectively protecting itself. 
such mm-hmm. as the initial 30-year rule on documents coming out, but then exemptions for 50 years in certain cases, and then exemptions of 75 years or 100 years in the case of the royal family. Let's move swiftly. That's where if you've like straight up uh, assassinated someone with yeah. your bare hands, presumably, when you ask for the 75. Yeah, exactly. My and wife would kill me if you found that. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I said I was at the pub with the boys when, in fact, I was committing human rights abuses. Let's shift to another number. Uh, Let's you, go you, from you one can't, you can't, you can't royal family to another royal family. All right, well, I'm going to shift to Connor's number. Both I'm going to shift, shift to producer Connor's number, which was brought up, just to say to spread to spread the <laughs> criticism around. We've moved from the U.S. to Britain. Let's say that producer Connor actually brought in the number 17. This number by special request. Which, by special request to mention this, that this was the age of a youth named Ali Anemra, who is on death row in Saudi Arabia. Why is that relevant? Well, we'll give you two quick reasons that producer Connor has mentioned to us. One is is that he happens to be the nephew of a prominent dissident sheikh who has led protests in eastern province of Saudi Arabia against the regime for years, uh, who was shot in the leg and detained and is also facing life in prison or possibly the death penalty. And so there may be some motivation, political motivation, behind a juvenile being imprisoned and facing the death penalty, which leads us, producer Connor notes, to the other dimension of this, which is Saudi Arabia, despite questions such as this, is now head of the United Nations Human Rights Council. What a happy institution. Because most of the members of that council saw nothing wrong whatsoever in cases such as this and allegedly, allegedly, favors were traded with certain countries so that the Saudis, in fact, would have a clear path to being the esteemed head of seeing how human rights is protected throughout the world. With well, they certain don't. countries, one of which we may or not may not be currently residing in. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, as I remember the story, it emerged that some deals had been done, uh, how to put it, uh, tempor- uh, temporally proximate uh, to the certain votes being cast, and then it became apparent they'd been done, and then the embarrassment was such that I think the deals got cancelled, uh, which means it's the worst of all worlds, because the, the, the bit that was actually worst in the whole situation, which was electing Saudi Arabia, stands, uh, and the bit that was neither here nor there, which is our end, uh, gets taken away. Uh, I mean, I, I guess uh, Saudi Arabia at least knows of what it speaks when it comes to human rights violations. <laughs> so no one can accuse them of lacking expertise, if anything else. Crystal, la la la. Yes, my number of the week is five. That is the optimistic number of months the Republic of Cyprus President Nikos Anastasiadis thinks that he can um, have a finished and signed solution to the 50-year Cyprus conflict on the table. Is this still going on? This is still going I, I on. I felt sure we'd sorted this out. Baby, we have made multiple efforts to sort, sort this one out. Um, it's a veritable Iraq inquiry. Of <laughs> it is. It's that, that length, at least. But this go, they may well get there. Um, but they have a particularly tight time frame, and they are shooting, I hear, on the grapevine for um, a referendum before May. So, and that relates to our second story. So we'll leave it there and talk about it a little bit later. Well, just to find optimism. But despite your little tone of cynicism there, there are no black sites of detainees in Cyprus. There are British sovereign British bases in Cyprus. But not black sites. <coughs> there are no black sites of detainees. And as far as we know, there are no juveniles or dissidents on death row in Cyprus. There are none of those. Well, there you go. So, so c- there's a <laughs> kudos to them. There's no. a positive. They've cleared, they've cleared the high bar. <laughs> Refugees in, in um, unending detention, on the other hand. Hmm. Oh, let's not go there today. Okay. <laughs> the old disappearance, but they're trying to cut down... Um, you know, they're down to five, ten a day. Oh, you know, Mediterranean island states, we don't, we don't, we don't have that much enthusiasm for, mm. as the colder climates do for disappearing people. We have more to do. We have more sun to soak up in these countries. Yeah, and the grapevines are quite, uh, quite, quite right. good, so I hear. That's right. I'll take that as a win. <laughs> 
Okay. Adam. My, my number of the week uh, is quote-unquote less than 50, which is the number of U.S. special forces the Obama administration has said will be active on the ground in the Kurdish part of Syria as part of the campaign against ISIS. Uh, there being, of course, already circa 4,500 U.S. troops on the ground in Iraq again. This is interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is the, uh, the painfully obvious one that is so banal I feel bad saying it, but let's, uh, which is that it suggests a certain degree of mission creep, uh, given that it was originally an assurance of the administration there'd be no ground troops in Iraq, then there would be none in Syria. Uh, you know, I, I, I look forward to, to watching how this unfolds in a wholly unpredictable and surprising manner over the course it's of the... It's about aspirational goals, Adam. Yeah, baby steps. <laughs> That's right. You don't want to just jump right in there with the full 150,000 too soon. Uh, the second point, uh, uh, as raised by... Uh, Connor Friedersdorf, um, who as well as having an awesome name, uh, is a kind of interesting, not very easily pigeonholed conservative type writer for The Atlantic, is that Obama's assumption that he has the authority to do this puts him in the position of doing exactly what he himself complained up and down the country was unconstitutional presidential overreach before he came into office. Because all of this rests on the authorization for the use of military force that was passed by Congress in the immediate aftermath of September the 11th, which is basically a blank check to deal with al-Qaeda, which bled into dealing with quote-unquote associated forces, which now apparently means the president can wage war wherever he's prepared to throw the word terror around to describe whoever he's using it against. I mean, this isn't all his own fault. Uh, Congress is guilty of not wanting it, say, as much as anyone's guilty of denying it. And I think, um, you know, they often, I think, like to strike a pose of being outraged, outraged that no one is giving them their say, but they'd actually be horrified to be asked to have a say because they're the kind of votes that fall you to the grave and beyond, as Hillary Clinton's 2003 Iraq vote did. Um, but still... Uh, in, in an ideal world, uh, you would like to think that constitutions mean something, um, and if we want some kind of uh, consensus within the U.S. policy behind these sorts of operations uh, in a, of a kind that would tend to be helpful to making them actually stick, you would think that being able to debate it and vote on it in somewhat more specific a way than has happened thus far in the People's Elected Legislative Assembly might be a start, but no danger anytime soon. It's a fine number, but let me ease your fears. This is a token creep. Token creep. I've, I've been, I, I've been called that before, I think. <laughs> it is almost a non-creep. It is so small. It's Why a, did a, I say a furtive that? creep, a if you furtive creep. First off, there have been U.S. Special Forces inside Syria since 2012. Now, they pulled back in 2013 for various reasons. They probably have been back in Syria since the end of 2014 or the start of this year working with the Kurds um, against the Islamic State. Uh, the reason why the Americans went public with this last week isn't as much, I think, the idea that they're going to ramp up and that they're opening up or paving the way for it. Um, they were embarrassed by the Russians. The Russians basically went in, and they didn't creep. They galloped, right? And we're talking attacks on more than 2,000 uh, targets in the past month, uh, supporting a six-front offensive, a very unsuccessful offensive, but a six-front offensive by the Syrian army, joined by Hezbollah, joined by Iran, joined by Iraqi militia, joined by Afghanis. Uh, the Americans are like, well, we got to be seen to be doing something. Because Obama doesn't want to confront the main issue, which is regime versus rebels, mm -hmm. you support the Kurds because they're like the easy good guys mm -hmm. in all this mess, the Kurds versus the Islamic State. So they say, okay, fine. They, we'll, put, we'll put John and Jim and Billy and 47 others in. And also, they dropped... Pretty the, ethnically homogenous. <laughs> yeah, the Benetton, the Benetton Special Forces, right? You know, if we can find like an, an American Abdul to join them. You know, they dropped in 50 tons of ammunition as well. They said it was... Some per person? They said it was, it was supposed to be for Arab forces, right? But in fact, it was for the Kurds who basically swept all this up, said thanks for the goodies. And here is the stinger in all this. <laughs> the, Kurd, the Kurds basically have said, oh, yeah, 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 send us the ammunition, and we'll go fight the Islamic State. And the Americans said, and here's where your mission creep would have come in, all right, we want you to like creep a little bit faster towards this city that the Islamic State holds, Raqqa. It's the largest city they held in Syria. <laughs> and the Kurds said, no, 
<laughs> don't care about that. That's largely an Arab city. Don't care about that. We'd like to secure our areas along the Turkish border. Thanks very much for the ammunition. So um, it's. I I think you're right about the legality of this. It that the Obama administration really is playing fast and loose. But I'm, I mean, you have to really contort yourself into a pretty weird set of positions to argue that this qualifies as a response to the organizers and orchestrators of 9-11. I mean, <laughs> how, I mean, I'm not sure that even like the, the, the people who live chained up in the basement of the American Enterprise Institute could, uh, could make build all of those links to the end of the, the, end of the chain. No, you I, really are just relying on saying, well, just because, and then hoping no one, no one pushes back. I, 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 the main action, and, and I, I, I think it's a great case to highlight, but I think it's a great case to highlight in the end, it's, it's going to be a sideshow. I mean, the main action in Syria is not where the Obama administration <clears throat> is choosing to shed this little bit of light, and, uh, and John and Billy and Abdul and whoever else are there, they're fighting on the fringes of a much bigger issue that's not being confronted by the administration. Mm-hmm. Anyway, John, Billy, Abdul, good luck. <laughs> I thought some prayers are with you. Topic two. Shall we? Yeah. On November 1st, the people of Turkey were given the chance to vote again by President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, having made the unfortunate error of denying his AK party a majority in elections in June. Long-standing listeners may recall we talked about that result at the time. In the intervening period, Parliament was unable to form a functioning government to replace the AK, and the president took the time to crack down on journalists, political enemies, minority groups, and generally anyone posing a threat to his hold on power. At the same time, the country has been destabilized by renewed conflict between state and Kurdish rebels, um, signs of an incipient threat from ISIS on Turkish soil, and the country's location on the front line of the Syrian crisis. A suicide attack killed 30 Kurds in the east of the country in July, and a subsequent bomb in Ankara killed more than 100 left-wing peace protesters. Final result of the election, 316 seats for AK, based on a sliver below 50% of the vote. It's a majority, but not one large enough to tinker with the Constitution without the help of others. President Erdogan declared it showed the voters had, quote, shown that they prefer action and development to controversy, and that they had, quote, given proof of their strong desire for the unity and integrity of Turkey. He called for others to respect the result amid murmurs from the rest of Europe that the election might not have been free and fair. It'll take some doing to convince that 50% of Turkey who didn't vote for Mr. Erdogan's party to see things that way. So, Kristala, back yes, in June, we were so hopeful, so yeah, hopeful I, that I the uh, Turkish electorate might have put a check on creeping authoritarianism and endorsed a more pluralistic vision for the country. Uh, can we forget all that now and it's back to Plan AK? Ah, oh, that was very nicely done, Plan AK. Uh, I, I was um, quite proud of it myself. <laughs> So I'm going to be relatively brief here because I think that Scott will also want to, to add his thoughts. But That's the, just a standing uh, <laughs> statement about all the topics, isn't That's it? That's true. And so eloquently as well. bend around that. <laughs> but I think the first thing to say about this as I rub my temples is that, to put things very simply, um, and I'll elaborate in a second, it is clear that Erdogan doesn't give a damn about the people's will. That's the kind of headline, all right? But more specifically, as you alluded to, Adam, he uh, managed quite nicely to create or ride off, if we're going to be generous, a climate of increasing fear and instability in Turkey. Um, So he, in other words, allowed political conditions after June um, to move to a point where people felt tremendously insecure and then he capitalised off this. That's kind of my headline summary of the Mm. situation. In terms of in, so, in terms of internal terrorism, you're right. There have been two serious attacks in the last three months. Both, lest we forget, on his enemies, but he uh, somehow but, managed but to turn it into. <clears> it's not himself. just that. I mean, what what sits inside that is the fact that this is a double win for him because it it creates a general climate of instability, but it doesn't affect affect the kind of people that most Turkish people care about. So unless you're Kurdish, you're not going to be too concerned or, or sympathise with the Kurdish cause. You're not going to be too concerned about 30 Kurdish people being bombed. Unless you're um, 
unless you sympathise with the peace movement and the activist movement, you're not going to give a damn about what happened um, earlier in in Ankara. So it creates it. It works in his favour. It worked in his favour, and mm-hmm. he shrugged his shoulders essentially to both things. But I mean, there's a story going on underneath here, and it means that Erdogan is going, particularly with the Kurdish issue, is going to be able to come in. I suspect on his white horse and say, "Look at how good I am at sweeping up this increasing tension with the PKK, with the mm. with the Kurdish party." Um, so look at how I bring stability, which is which is exactly mm. what exactly what he said um, the other day. I guess the other thing that is happening. The other thing that that I sense um, before and after these elections in Turkey is this feeling among the general kind of electorate of of a, a resignation. I think so. I guess it's not just a politics of fear. He did win on a politics of fear, but there's also this. What, what you hear is, what other choice do we have? We vote. Because the opposition is tremendously fragmented, they can't form many alliances, um, and at the end of the day, he is the devil that we know, and that's okay. So there is this this kind of re- feeling of tremendous resignation among the general kind of electorate, particularly I think in the middle classes in Turkey and the business classes in Turkey. So I guess the other thing. Um, The other thing that I wanted to note is that it's amazing that no polling company, to me, got tremendous, even even remotely close to to, to predicting this result. Um, but before we get very depressed, there are also some good points here. And I brought up. I'll, I'll take my noose down <coughs> from the scaffold mm-hmm, now. Mm-hmm. Um, thanks. Um, I've brought up at least long enough to hear this point. Well, I think this will buoy you. I think this is this is sufficiently cheering, um, at least for my corner of the world. So this is generally bad Turkish democracy, bad for Turkish democracy in Turkey, but good for Cyprus. Um, Erdogan has had a very steady hand and said for the last ten or so years, for whatever reasons, that he supports a resolution of the Cyprus conflict. A change in government might have destabilized that. So the Cypriot parties are cheering, and I personally think that he'll he'll assist in seeing a, a solution of the Cyprus conflict through to its end, or at least not derail off or derail it. And if it goes uh, belly up, then then he'll play that too. But he's not going to destabilize it, I think, and that's good news. Um, the second thing is that the HDP, the Kurdish party, again passed the 10% threshold. It's slightly more narrowly this yes, time, but still yes, there, right? Yes, but, but it managed to, and that, I think, keeping them in parliament, and I think that is tremendously good news. Um, and perhaps, Scott, paradoxically, there might also be good news on talks with the PKK um, if he wants to show that he can calm the violence. So... Yeah. I, I, that's an excellent summary, Christelle. I mean, on, on the election itself, security wins. I mean, just bottom line, we can we can talk about whether votes were massaged in certain areas of the country. Just to, but, but I I don't think you could say this is a widespread fraud that that, yeah. that gave AKP uh, the parliamentary majority. People probably voted out of fear. They voted out of the lack of seeing an alternative. And I think those two deadly bombings, uh, one in July, mm. so what only within a few weeks after the election, mm. which was probably the Islamic State. The mm. second, we don't know who carried it mm. out. Um, those, I think, were were big. Because what they did is they allowed they allowed the AKP as part of their election strategy and uh, perversely to shut down uh, media that yeah. they found uncomfortable. I mean, they, you know, there was one television station that was raided, that was on air as it was raided and showed itself being closed leading newspapers, some of Turkey's leading newspapers. They've attempted to close them down. They didn't succeed, but they have arrested some of the journalists and executives from those newspapers. So they're tightening up on that acceptable public mm. space. But that said, and what I find interesting, I want to take you off, is your point on the HDP, because had they fallen below 10% mm. and not, therefore, been able to cross the threshold for representation, mm. this situation would have magnified Because they still have members in Parliament, and I think the projection was around 61 mm. on election night, and I haven't followed up to see if that's right. Had they not had the 61 MPs, HDP, AKP 
would be talking not about around 315 members of parliament. They would have had far more than that, which would have given them the supermajority that they could have just run through the changes through the Constitution. At which point they basically say, uh, Mr. Erdogan, could you please be king? Um, Treat us us kindly as subjects. So they've fallen short of that. And so they still got to maneuver a little bit. Now, what's interesting is is that I don't think HDP are going to come in and work with them to ensure uh, changes to the Constitution. I'm not sure what the main opposition party right now, CHP, is doing. They, they really have looked indecisive. Mm. Where AKP really gained in this election, once you break the numbers down, is they gained actually from the right wing. They gained mm. from the nationalists, mm. from MHP. Always a good sign, I find, <laughs> when, a, when a party manages that. But remember, Adam, the dog whistle. But remember, Adam, the other side of it is, is that AKP failed to go into, for whatever reason, coalition with MHP after the last election. They failed to go in with the nationalist, mm-hmm. which means they still don't have that block to go beyond the majority to get the constitutional changes through. Mm-hmm. So I keep an eye on that because I think, then to build off Costello's excellent final point, is I think Erdogan has, has a choice to make, and that is... Whether he wants to continue to ramp up the feeling of insecurity and therefore justify the crackdown, because I think that only takes you so far. Whether you do that or whether he says at a certain point, okay, now I'm strong enough, we're all negotiating again. Mm. Now I'll go back and I'll talk to some of the Kurds. Mm. We'll put PKK to the side. I'll talk to some of the Kurds and then try to basically divide and rule in terms of who he talks to. Mm. Um, You know, he's... People have, made, people have proclaimed that he has been doomed over the last few years. The Gassi Park protests mm-hmm. in 2013, the election in June. The man is tough. Mm-hmm. And I think we underestimated, or at least I underestimated him before the latest elections, but I still think there's a long road to go for him. And in terms of what that means for Turkey, it could get worse. Mm-hmm. It could get marginally better. Because it seems like we're, we're entering one of those, uh, like... Russian slash Chinese type situations where the official jobs that people hold doesn't correspond to actually the government of the country, right? Because the, the presidency is notionally a, a kind of very limited, uh, almost ceremonial office with parliament holding most of the power because his plan was to move into the presidency and then dole out a whole bunch of new executive powers. So in effect, he is the almost unchecked uh, source of authority behind the government, but he doesn't actually have a job that says that he ought to have that power. Which you, I always think it's a sign that a country is not operating perfectly when there is that kind of distinction between the job you have and the fact that you're just in charge anyway. Agreed, but the burden then comes back to, say, the Prime Minister, Mr. Davitolu, mm. and to other ministers to basically say, well, look, we matter here. And in but fact, maybe they feel they can't do that because he'll just go, uh, how good, how nice for you, get out. That's, that's so, the... I mean, David, David Oglu is also his man. He's a, I think he's Erdogan's man. Agreed. But here is a man, a prime minister, who prided himself coming into office that he had a vision of what Turkey would be in the world. Definitely, make Turkey its the, European orientation. Right. <clears throat> and that's something we haven't talked about here. That, that one of the things that a huge setback in the last few months has been, if Turkey is seriously wanting to come into the EU, mm. that has really been put into jeopardy because mm. of the crackdown. That was what I was going to say. That, that like this, Surely this has to knock on the head yeah. any serious talk about the entering the EU. I mean, you know, back when Sarkozy was running France, he was already more or less saying, you know, don't call us, we'll call yeah. you. But, you know, between the increasingly assertive authoritarianism, if we want to use the most charitable description of the government, outbreaks of domestic violence on, on a grand scale, and the fact that it has a direct border onto one of the worst trouble spots in the world in, in recent years. I mean, the EU, you'd have to have a pretty powerful rush of blood to the head before you decided it was a good idea to yeah. bring all of this within your walls, wouldn't you? No. Yeah. I mean, can't get the pronunciation right. I'm going to like Cristala. But Davitolu came in to at least offset that by saying, look, we don't necessarily have to come into the EU. We look east as well as looking west, mm. right? And Erdogan supported that strategy. What I suspect you're going to see now, I would keep eyes, watch for Turkey to pivot very hard towards the Gulf states. 
yeah. towards the Saudi and the other Gulf also states. Also always uh, a great sign. Uh, <laughs> increase majority by, by appealing to national security conservatives, yeah. then pivot towards the Gulf states. Think, I'm loving these people. I think Adam is making himself a list. Of <laughs> yeah, yeah they've got the full checklist yeah. of, love, 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 of like desirable political trends. But, but they can throw a few disappearances in there just like, to no, get the full, uh, the full back. They're there with the Kurdish community. But how we can wrap it all up together. Watch, therefore, with that pivot towards the Gulf states to, to bring <clears> us back <throat> to to our friend President Obama and Billy and Abdul and so on. Watch for Turkey and Saudi to basically say, look, we're going to come in with our own approach to Syria. We're going to come in. We're going to back the rebels. We don't care what the Americans, whether or not they agree with this, which means you've got a Russian bloc, you've got the Americans off here with the Europeans, and you've got the Turks and the Saudis, basically, exercise authority. Jesus. Adam is rubbing his temple in the... In the, in the uh, I, think, I think, actually, I'm, I'm putting my whole face into my palms, <laughs> yeah. just contemplating what uh, an unmitigated yeah. uh, clusterfuck, please, beep. Well, let me feed, let me feed <laughs> you one. Let me feed you one which cuts across everything we've talked about today, going from Guantanamo Bay, through Iraq, through Saudi, through Turkey, to here. And that is that one of the leading... You know, one of the leading scholars who would profess to tell us all about international relations, G. John Eikenberry, advisor to U.S. governments, you know, eminent... The G-man. The G-man, who said, look, hailing the fact that all we have to do is is that we get back to the liberal international order, the liberal international order will save us all, and so on. Folks, invoking the liberal international order is like playing Pollyanna right now. Uh, whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, it's, it's, a, site, it, it's a diversion. Uh, because of the way that international politics is going, the way that human rights is caught up in these issues, both at domestic level and in terms of regional conflicts. Bring that noose out, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) It uh, it was only halfway down, to be fair. (laughs) But the sun is still shining in Cyprus, so we're okay there. (laughs) Break out the grapes. I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast at, on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. Uh, you can also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes and leave us a rating or a comment, which helps others discover our podcast. So please do that uh, and tell your friends while you're at it. We also hopefully have other channels for contact coming soon. Watch this space. My co-hosts have been Cristali Kinthi. Where can people find you should they be inclined to do so? You can find me on Twitter at at Yakinthu, Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. Duly noted. And Scott, what's your uh, wide-ranging social media profile like? Editing EA Worldview, political worldview's partner, at eaworldview.com, and camped out on Twitter at scottlucas underscore EA. And I'm Adam Quinn. I'm Adam Quinn 161 uh, on Facebook, uh, where you can follow me for all sorts of uh, useful output. I am far less frequent a tweeter, but you can find me at Adam James Quinn there if you're so inclined. Our producer is Conan McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham, which is in England, in case you didn't know. Back soon. We hope you will be too. Bye!